0: Well, we continue this morning our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're glad that you're able to join us. If you have not been with us throughout this series, we are in a New Testament Gospel. The Gospel is one of four narratives about the life and ministry of Jesus. These narratives are eyewitness narratives that tell us about who Jesus is and about what he's come to do. Luke tells us at the beginning of his book Luke chapter 1, that this is an eyewitness narrative. Luke has been, in this gospel, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? From the beginning of the book, Luke has been skillfully giving us firsthand accounts of the people who have observed Jesus' life. We saw in the first chapters of the book the announcement of Jesus coming by an angel, giving a prophecy to his mother about his miraculous birth. We saw the celebration of his miraculous virgin birth by a host of angels declaring glory to God that a savior was born. And we saw Jesus' ministry begin with an anointing of the Holy Spirit and a declaration from the Father in heaven that this Jesus is my beloved son. And we've seen Jesus chapter after chapter as he has Uh, continued his ministry, demonstrating his authority, chapter after chapter, his authority over every sphere and category in this universe. We've seen Jesus' authority and his power over all of the creation. He's done this in different ways. Last week, by providing the physical needs of his people. Uh, In a, a, a striking passage, he calmed the storm by a word. Demonstrating that he is, in fact, the creator God. He's demonstrated his authority over Satan in the spiritual and demonic realm by casting out demons and healing those that were afflicted by demons. He's demonstrated his authority over sickness as he's healed all kinds of diseases. And we've seen his authority even to forgive sins. And we've seen his authority over death itself as he has raised the dead to life again. We've seen him. Be the author of salvation, saving those who embrace him by faith. But in Luke's progression, in the progression of his narrative, this underlying question that has been developing in the minds of his people and in our minds as well is, who is Jesus? And along the way, people have been attempting to answer that question, and Luke has been recording those attempts. But he hasn't come out and said it clearly yet in his narrative who Jesus is. So he's been recording attempts to answer this question, like the crowds in Luke chapter 4. They're responding to Jesus' teaching and miracles, and they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, Jesus commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Luke records in Luke 4, verse 22, that the people of his own hometown have asked, a similar question, though not quite in those words. They ask, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, who does this local kid think that he is? And then, because they were offended at him, they attempted to kill him for blasphemy by throwing him off a cliff. The religious leaders have asked a version of this question when Jesus forgave a man's sins by saying that that's something that only God could do. And they ask, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And even his disciples have asked the question. When he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples asked, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And in last week's passage, the king himself, King Herod, would ask the question too, in fear of Jesus' spreading kingdom, Luke records that Herod was perplexed. John, I beheaded, Herod says, and then he asks, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And this morning, finally, Jesus himself asks the question. And for the first time in this book, his disciples are no longer free to speculate about Jesus. They are called upon to decide, they must decide. They are asked the pointed question that all of us must answer. You and I must answer this too. And this morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter nine, verses 18 to 27 you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. And we will have two points this morning. Point number one, Jesus the Messiah, which will be 9, uh, verses 18 to 22. And point number two, the cost of discipleship, which will be 9, 23 to 27. Jesus the Messiah, point number one, the cost of discipleship, point number two. I pray that this morning that each of us would see Jesus, as the true Messiah, count the cost, and follow him through life as true disciples. Let's begin by reading the first part of the passage. Follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. Luke 9, 18 to 20, this is God's word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Let's look at point number one Jesus the Messiah, chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. Jesus the Messiah. For context, until this point in Luke's account, Luke has been demonstrating who Jesus is. He's been showing us scene by scene what the disciples have observed about Jesus. And through the disciples who were eyewitnesses to these events, we have had a front row seat to his ministry, learning with them about Jesus. And until now, by reading and studying this book so far, we've been along for the ride. We've been speculating with the disciples and with the crowds, wondering who this Jesus is. But now, for the first time in the book, it's no longer an issue of observation and speculation. For the first time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is asking the questions. Jesus is asking the question. Do you know that there are many? not only in Jesus' day, but throughout history since, who have speculated and asked questions, debated about who Jesus is. Speculation continues to be rife throughout the world about who Jesus is, with many people coming up with many answers. Speculation is a a realm, a world that we like to live in, a world of opinions and ideas and debate. But now, for the first time, The disciples are being asked no longer to observe and speculate. He's telling them, Jesus is telling them to decide who they think he is. And Luke, in writing his account, puts us in the same position. See what Luke is doing here. He's having you and me answer the same question. We are being moved. We are being moved from observers to participants. Jesus begins by asking a more indirect question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds, who do other people say that I am? In answering this, the disciples are still in the realm of speculation. They can report what kinds of things people say. And look at the different answers here. Interesting answers. Many believe that he is John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen, come back from the dead. Even in the days of those that had met Jesus, those that had heard him teach, those that saw his miracles, even then there was no clarity or agreement among the crowds about who Jesus was, about who Jesus is. Jesus was not meeting the preconceived notions of the crowds. And so they thought of him as, at best, a prophet, perhaps even a great prophet, perhaps the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah who was prophesied to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. But surely not the Messiah. Jesus was not meeting their expectation. Do you know this can be true for us? It can be true for you and for me that God, that Jesus does not meet our expectations. We, like the crowds, like the disciples, have expectations for God, things that we have for him to do, the the things that we would want him to be or to be like. We can have these same expectations for Jesus. And like the crowds, when God doesn't meet our expectations, we can reject him and move on and look for the things that we're looking for elsewhere. I wonder if you're doing that with God or with Jesus today. I wonder if Jesus isn't meeting your expectation. I wonder if you, like the crowds, have a list of things, a laundry list of the things that you want God to do for you, for Jesus to do for you, that he's not meeting. And so you're ready to, to reject him in order to have a God in your own image or a savior in your own image. Let me encourage you, friend. To embrace the Jesus who is and realize that he is the Messiah, the Savior that you need. Even if he isn't the Savior that you want on first look. But Jesus goes further. He asks that one additional awkward question. Not just what do the crowds think, or what do others say? But then he says to them, verse 20, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I wonder if that question catches you flat-footed. It's shocking. See that Jesus will not leave this in the realm of speculation. This is not a debate or a matter of opinion. Jesus asks his disciples to decide. They must make a decision. And as Luke brings us along in this account, he makes it clear for the reader, for us, that we too must decide what we will do with Jesus. We, as the readers, as the observers, are no longer on the sidelines. We move from observation to participation from mere observers to participants we are now engaged in the story now I don't mean by this that this is a story this account is about us but it does involve us because it's a question that everyone must answer and Peter answers for the disciples in a beautiful moment of clarity Peter answers you are the Christ of God you are the Messiah come from God. Now, what is Peter saying here? What does he mean by this declaration that Jesus is the Christ? We tend to think of that word Christ as Jesus' last name because we hear them together, Jesus Christ. But the word is a Greek word, Christos, meaning, the, meaning uh, an anointed one. And that phrase, anointed one, that word, Christos, came to be associated with the Messiah. What the Old Testament promised is that one would come, one who would come in God's power, empowered by his spirit, who would be anointed and set apart for the task of rescuing Israel. And what Peter is saying here is that you, Jesus, are this anointed one, this Messiah, You, Jesus, are Israel's promised eternal king, the savior of the world, David's greater son, who would be the hope of Israel. Jesus is the one long promised and long hoped for Messiah, the one who would rescue and redeem his people, bringing peace to earth. Luke shows us that Jesus brings his followers to a climactic fork in the road. He takes us right up to that fork in the road. There will be no bystanders in this story. No no one on the sidelines. For the life of Jesus is one that all of us, all of us in this world must deal with and respond to. I'm sure that you have been watching as I have that you've seen firsthand people responding to this epidemic very differently. We are all experiencing the same facts, the same set of circumstances, the same virus, or at least strands of the same virus. But all of us are responding differently to those same circumstances. Some are responding with heightened fear, anxiety. Some at a fever pitch. Some are taking serious caution and precaution to be sure that they and their families are safe. Others are responding to the same facts and the same circumstances with a surprising lack of concern. But regardless of the response, the circumstances are the same. The virus and the pandemic is the same, but we're responding to this differently. That's a helpful illustration for us when it comes to Jesus. Who Jesus is is not up for grabs. Jesus is who he is. He doesn't change. And the fact is, he is Israel's Messiah. God himself become man in human flesh, the one who would come to rescue and redeem his people, regardless of how we respond to him. However, he calls us to respond to him in repentance and faith, to respond to him by believing in him and following him. And Peter is right. Their answer is right. The disciples are right. Jesus is the Messiah. But immediately he begins to explain that he is still not the Messiah that they expected, the Messiah that they were looking for and hoping for. Look at verse 21. As soon as Peter says, you are the Christ come from God. Verse 21. And he, that is Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Jesus tells his disciples to not share this news broadly yet. I wonder if you wonder why. Why is Jesus, having heard the right answer, telling these disciples not to share this news, not to tell the world yet? Well, there's I'm sure lots of reasons, but at least two prominent ones come to mind. The first is these disciples, though they understand the fact that he's the Messiah, they are not yet reliable witnesses to this fact. We're going to see in the verses that follow later on in this very chapter that the disciples still have no idea what this Jesus's purposes are. They are confused and they're excited about being great in Jesus kingdom having seats at his right and his left and being great in his kingdom as he comes and defeats Israel's enemies. So Jesus, for uh, at least one reason, is telling them not to share this news broadly yet because they're not yet reliable witnesses. But another reason that is prominent throughout the Gospels is Jesus is concerned with following the father's will and with the father's timeline. And he's concerned to not escalate the political scene too quickly. And to speed up his own death outside of the father's plan. And so he's concerned that this news about him being the Christ not lead to an untimely death. Jesus, in this passage, in verse 21 and 22, for the first time in his ministry, is revealing his eternal plan to save sinners through his suffering and death. Jesus has been talking about who he is and what he's come to do in more veiled terms. Now, for the first time, he's revealing not only his plan to save sinners, but how it is that he's going to do it through his suffering and death. Look at how he says it again in verse 22. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now, Jesus, what he's doing here is putting two opposite concepts into his disciples' minds, and it is literally blowing their minds. He's taking the concept that he is the Messiah and a brand new concept that he's going to suffer and die and be rejected and putting them together. This went so far against their expectations that their minds seem incapable of grasping it. What Jesus is saying here is that he is... He calls himself the son of man. This language would remind Israelites of the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter seven, in which the ancient of days, God, the father, sits on a throne. And then there is one like a son of man, Daniel seven and verse 13 says, who came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Daniel 7 verse 14 was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here's Jesus saying, I am that son of man. I am this Messiah. I am the one who has all power and dominion and authority that has all glory and who is receiving a kingdom from God, a kingdom in which all peoples and nations and languages will serve me. And yet I am also the suffering servant that the prophets prophesied about. I am, as we saw in our reading in Isaiah 53, the one who would come and suffer for the sins of his people. Now, the disciples understood the Son of Man stuff. They understood the dominion and power stuff. They were excited to think about a Messiah who had all power, who could rescue God's people. But they were looking for a political Messiah who would ride a horse and lead an army and defeat their enemies. But what Jesus says is he is actually going to defeat God's enemies, not through wielding a sword, but by willingly going and being crucified on a cross. Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, reveals his eternal plan to save sinners through suffering and death. And this blows their minds. And yet, while this message was shocking to the disciples, it is the gospel message. And it is, in fact, our only hope. It's the only hope for humanity. It's the only hope for you and me. The only hope that you and I have of being restored to our creator God and having life after death with God is that we would have life through Jesus' death. You see, this is the gospel message that Jesus is preaching and proclaiming. The disciples had been preaching the good news that the Messiah has come, but they have misunderstood who this Messiah is and his purpose, what it is that he'd come to do. He, in fact, has come to bring eternal life through his own death. You see what this means. This is the gospel message. It means that we are sinners and that we have sinned in such a great way that we have literally dethroned God. We have taken, sought to take God off of his throne and put ourselves there. We have sinned against him in such a great way that we deserve punishment and death. We deserve to be banished and uh, evicted from God's world and space and home. But what we see here is that Jesus has actually come to be a sacrifice in the place of sinners to actually take upon himself the punishment and the death that you and I deserve. That he has literally come to rescue sinners like you and like me by surrendering himself and taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. This is the irony. This is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel message and of Jesus' ministry, that life, that eternal life would come through death, through Jesus' death in the place of sinners, that peace with God would come through Christ's suffering. You see, Jesus brings our deliverance from God's wrath through his own capture and torture and death, and he would demonstrate his strength through apparent weakness, by being, he says, rejected and killed. Eternal victory is going to come through what looks like utter defeat. But this is, friends, the counterintuitive beauty of the gospel message. The strong one demonstrates his love for sinners by suffering in our place. God comes to earth, becomes a man to bring mankind back to God. And this message while it was shocking for his disciples, is beautiful. For in this way, Jesus is demonstrating God's love for us. Not simply that he would save us, but save us by taking upon himself our punishment in our place. If you're listening to this live stream and you haven't understood this gospel message in do you know that today can be for you a day of salvation. If you would, like these disciples, put your faith in Christ as the Messiah, as God's uh, redeemer, you can, by putting your faith in Christ and turning from your sins, experience this life, this peace, this deliverance. Because Christ will experience for you and his death will be applied to you if you trust in him. Let me encourage you to trust him today. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and he is also the Savior of the world, and he has come to die so that we might live forever with him. That's point number one, Jesus the Messiah. Point number two, the cost of discipleship. Point number two, the cost of discipleship. Verses 23 to 27. We're going to see now Jesus turns and begins speaking to, it looks like, a crowd because it says that he said to all. And he explains for us that life by death is not just a Jesus thing. It's a Christian thing. And if we are to follow our suffering Savior, life by death is actually in every disciple thing, in every Christian thing. Let me read verses 23 to 27. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We see here that Jesus then gives a call to discipleship for others to follow him. But yet he warns them that there is a cost to following Christ. It will cost to follow Christ because to be united with the Savior, the suffering Savior, Means that in having fellowship with Christ, though there are great rewards, there will be, in the eyes of this world, great cost. He says that if anyone would come after him to follow him, that they must deny themselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. This phrase, a cross to bear, is one that is used by Christians, and we In some ways, throw it around to talk about the ways that we suffer. Sometimes we use this phrase, that's just my cross to bear, in ways that aren't, I think, entirely appropriate to what Jesus is actually saying here. We talk about it with the annoyances or the little inconveniences in our lives. Uh, A boss at work that annoys us or maybe a family member who is frustrating to us. Well, that's just my cross to bear. You know, that's not actually what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about simply grinning and bearing it when we have annoying things happening in our lives or simply passively enduring difficulties in this life. What Jesus is talking about here is actually active. It isn't simply resigning ourselves to difficulty in this world and putting our hopes in heaven, but it's actually embracing the life of the cross. He is actually saying that if we are to follow Christ, we must actively deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and actively follow him. I wonder what this command, what this call and this cost of discipleship sounds like to you. I wonder, Christian, If this is shocking for you, this picture of taking up our cross daily and following Christ. You see, the cross was an image for uh, Jesus' disciples, for those that lived in that day and age, that would have been shocking and frightening. The cross was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of such torture that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified unless Caesar himself approved it. It was seen as such a, a horrible way to die and to suffer that it was only for the worst kinds of criminals. And yet Jesus himself is going to embrace such torture and death in our place. But he calls us to do the same, to take up our own cross and embrace the life of a martyr in following Christ. Uh, in Christianity Explained, uh, a really helpful tool in helping non-Christians get to know Jesus. Uh, The curriculum says this. What does it mean in practical terms to repent? Well, it means that I put Jesus first. I put Jesus before my own will. This is The curriculum, Jesus says a person must forget or deny self, carry his cross and lose his life. Now, the cross was an instrument of death. Jesus tells me that if I am to follow him, I must go through a kind of death experience. I must die to the right to run my own life, which is sin. I am to surrender to the God given right of Jesus to be my king. See, this is what Jesus is calling us to do to literally die to ourselves, to die to our own desires, to deny ourselves or literally disown ourselves in order to embrace Christ's desires for us and in order to follow him, to be pleasing to him and to fulfill his mission. Now, I think sometimes as Christians, we can read a passage like this, And put this in the category of, well, I guess this means that I must be willing to die a martyr's death if Christ were to ask that of me. But since I'm living in 21st century America, I'm not living in some war-torn place in the Middle East or some place in the Far East. That's not really going to happen to me. So that means I can live my life whatever way I would like to. But if I am in such a situation, I need to be willing to face martyrdom. In other words, I must be willing to die for Jesus, but not live for Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is not simply that we need to be willing to live for him, but die daily to ourselves and our own desires, our own visions, our own dreams. If those things come against what Christ calls us to do. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see here, the Christian life is costly. Following Christ is costly. And I wonder brothers and sisters, my Christian friends, if following Christ is costing you anything today, if it isn't costing you anything, you must ask why. I wonder sometimes in our gospel presentations, if we present Jesus, if we present the gospel in a way that kind of puts a shade on passages like this, that we can present Jesus and the gospel in a way that really sounds too good to be true. Come to Jesus and get everything that you want, get all of your dreams, get heaven and a good life now in a way that shades the cost of following Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage us in our evangelism to include in our gospel presentations not simply a call for people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, but to give them a proper assessment of the cost of following Christ. My wife had the opportunity of uh, sharing the gospel, actually taking a a young Japanese girl through this Christianity Explained curriculum that I just quoted from. And this young girl had been coming to our church and attending our our home uh, small group uh, for a period of months. And over a period of six sessions of walking through the gospel of Mark, Bev and a couple of other ladies were able to walk this young Japanese girl through the gospel message and through the claims of Christ. And it was actually at this point in that presentation of who Jesus is, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ and the reality that following Christ may cost her her own physical family relationships, a relationship with her mom and dad back in Japan, relationship with siblings, that she realized that this cost was for her more costly than she thought. And what that meant for her is she walked away from Christ. She said that maybe in the future, she'd be willing to consider this, maybe when her parents had had passed away, but for now it was going to be too costly. It is a shocking cost. It's going to cost us our lives. It's going to cost us this world. It's going to cost us perhaps our reputation. We had another friend in Dubai at our our church who was from Iran, who came to know Christ and believed in Christ and put his faith, his hope in this gospel message. And this Iranian friend, Masood, had the experience of needing to renew his visa. He had an Iranian passport and he went to have his visa renewed. And in the visa process, one of the questions that they ask uh, in that part of the world is, what is your religion? And up until then, his passport and his visas had said, I am a Muslim. But once he had become a Christian and he had to reapply for a visa, which happened every two or three years, he said, I am a Christian. And all of a sudden, he went from having an Iranian passport that said he was a Muslim to having a visa in that same passport that said, I am a Christian. I remember talking with him about it, asking him about it. And he was conflicted. But he said, how can I be ashamed of Christ? How can I say that I'm not a Christian when I am? And he quoted our passage. He said, if you, he said, if I am ashamed of Christ, in filling out my visa application. The Bible says he will be ashamed of me on that day when he comes in glory. And I can't lie, I'm not a Muslim, I'm a Christian now. Now this meant drastic things. This meant great costs for him. This meant not being able to return to his homeland. This meant eventually needing to claim asylum in another country. This meant all of his life had to be uprooted and everything about his life for himself and for his wife and for his two precious girls was going to have to change. But he embraced this cost that Jesus calls his disciples to embrace, to be willing to give up anything in order to follow Jesus. You see the kinds of things that Jesus says that we are going to have to be willing to give up in order to follow Christ. Look at verse 24. This dying daily, this taking up the cross daily in order to follow Christ involves death to safety and self-protection. Look at verse 24. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So much of our world and of people in this world spend their time hoarding the things of this world. We desire safety, we desire protection, we desire the things of this world and the material of this world. We've seen it in these last two weeks with people hoarding things like toilet paper and paper towels that had to stand in a long line at Target and was rationed one, one package of toilet paper. What a crazy image. For how we tend to view this world and the things of this world that we're out to acquire all that we can have or at least have the things that we need and want. See what Jesus is saying here. We need to be willing to put to death our own perceptions of safety and self-protection. We need to be willing to lay our dreams for our safe lives on the line in order to do good to others and in order to follow Christ not sure what this means for you today, not sure what Christ may call you to do today, but it may mean risking your own safety and protection for the good of others, whether it's the eternal good of others or the practical good of others. But in order to follow Christ, we need to be willing to embrace a giving up of some safety and self-protection in order to show true Christ-like love to others. You see as well, verse 25, that we need to be willing to put to death worldly success. Look at verse 25, what does it profit a man? To gain the whole world, lose or forfeit himself or his own soul. We need to be willing to put to death our own vision of what worldly success will look like in order to be successful in God's eyes. You see here the value of our soul. You see that there's literally a scale in this verse in verse 25. Of on, on the one hand, everything that you could get in this world and on the other, your soul. We live in a time where we are very concerned about our physical safety and our, and our bodies and our health. You see what Jesus is saying here. There's something so much more precious and valuable that is valuable, more valuable than anything in this world. And do you know what that is? Your soul, your eternal soul. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there are no insignificant people. All of us are eternal souls. We're not just bodies, but souls. And our soul is going to go on forever. And so much more important than the things of this world, the stuff of this world, or the success of this world, is the success of our soul. And what that means is having Christ, embracing Christ, and being united with Christ but it may cost us worldly success. You see as well in verse 26, it may mean death to our reputation, death to reputation. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy Angels. You see, we often want to have it both ways. We want to, on the one hand, have safety and self-protection now and safety and self-protection in heaven. We want to have worldly success now and we want to have success with God in heaven. We want to have a good reputation now to be popular now and well, at least blend in or don't stick out now and also be popular with God. But do you see, we can't have it both ways. It will mean for all of us in order to, To be popular with God, to be accepted by God means as we stand with Christ and stand as a Christian, that we are going to be unpopular in the eyes of the world, or at least with some in this world. I wonder what these things, these costs that Jesus holds out, how that sounds to you. What it looks like to pick up a cross daily Brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm encouraged as I look around our congregation and see people doing this, to see people doing this day in and day out, following Jesus in obedience and embracing a life of self-sacrifice, not as an end in itself, not simply self-denial in order to promote our own self-righteousness or to prove that we're better than others. No, laying down our lives and sacrificing ourselves out of love and kindness for others. I've seen examples of this throughout our congregation. I want to mention a few of these, of ways that I've seen our own members demonstrating a willingness to take up the cross and follow Christ and deny themselves because it's what Christ calls them to do. I love hearing of Jay Figueroa, who wanted his son to play baseball, taking his son out of Little League because the games were on Sundays, because he was more concerned about his sons and his family's spiritual well-being than simply worldly success in a sport. I love as well seeing David Ng and Danny Liu getting up early Saturday mornings to love their sons and be a basketball coach and then share the gospel with people in their neighborhood. I love seeing brothers like Oscar Vasquez staying up and taking shifts with his wife through the night, to care for his wife and his newborn son, and to and to be sure that his family is well cared for, even at the expense of his own sleep. And I love seeing sisters like Erica Vasquez being willing to disrupt her baby's nap schedule to have lunch with a single sister who's hurting. I love seeing single men like Chris Baltadano getting to know the ins and outs of Amway in order to share the gospel with someone he met in a coffee shop, or A young man like Adrian Chavez using his evenings to evangelize at the skate park or spend time with families in order to be an influence and an encouragement to children in the church. I love seeing brothers like Caesar take his lunches in order to share the gospel with co-workers or friends. I love seeing our pastor, Pastor Jeremy, in the midst of suffering, spending himself for the good of others. And even inviting single people into his home in order to day in and day out watch the life of a a faithful Christian family and be discipled in that way, as he's done with so many. I love seeing older people like Auntie Marisa, encouraging young families and young moms with her smile as she seeks to love on these kids and give people perspective from her years of faithfulness. Or Uncle Tony, taking young people out to lunch in order to be an encouragement to them. But let's do this all the more. This, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just some examples that I sketched down of ways that we can sacrifice ourselves, our own desires, and be inconvenienced in order to love others. And this is what Christ has called us to, a life of embracing Christ and following in his footsteps. These are ways in which we can love like him and be united with him and fellowship with him. And even at times, experience suffering with him in order to be changed, to be more like him. We see in Philippians chapter three that the apostle Paul talks about some of the things that he had to give up in order to follow Christ. He has a list there of all of the things that he used to have as an Israelite, as a Pharisee, as someone who was successful in his culture and in his world. And he talks about having to give up all of those things. He had to count them all, all of those things that he had gained as lost for the sake of Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. But what I want you to notice here, though Paul is talking about the things that he has had to give up, the things that he used to have in terms of success in the eyes of this world that he's had to set aside. He doesn't Talk about it as having lost something, though he is giving something up. He only talks about it in terms of something that he's gained. Listen to his language in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see what Paul is saying? That in following Christ and even being willing to give up things for Christ, that we always gain so much more than we ever have to give up. You see, he says there's a surpassing worth of being in a relationship with Christ. And this is the the wonderful thing about Christ's call. Even as we count the cost, we realize that in comparison with what we gain, Those things that we're leaving behind and losing are nothing in comparison. He says, going on in verse 8 of Philippians 3, For his sake, that is for Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says this in a wonderful declaration that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, I, I know this is a very serious passage and one in which the call seems very costly, but from the eyes of those who have been united with Christ. And those who are able to see the the long-term vision of what life with Christ forever looks like. We look back at the things that we give up for the sake of Christ. And we're able to say with the missionaries like Hudson Taylor, I sacrificed nothing. I gained in Christ everything. Hudson Taylor was famous for bringing the gospel to China. And living his life in China and preaching the gospel in a culture and with a language that he had to learn in order to to bring others to Christ. And after leaving his family and his life and his culture and his comforts of home behind, at the end of his life, he was able to say, I never made a sacrifice. Taylor's daughter-in-law, Geraldine Taylor, talks about how she had heard about missionaries who talked like this and thought that they were exaggerating. But then she was able to say her own experience proved this to be true. But now I know, she says, that such words are wholly true. Talk of sacrifice. This is no sacrifice. There is no such word to the Christian. Count it all joy, all joy. She talks about having experienced a riot, of having her own life saved by a miracle, of sitting bruised and bleeding amidst the ruins of her home. And in that hour, believe me, heaven itself was open to us, and we tasted then and afterwards a joy so marvelous that I scarcely like to speak about it here as we realized that we had been permitted to suffer something for Christ's sake. No words can tell you the joy which filled our hearts. We've never known anything like it since. And we would not miss that experience out of our lives for all that you could give us. David Livingston, who took the gospel to Africa in a previous century, a previous generation, said this. If you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. And then he says this about Christ's commission to follow him. And to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Jesus would tell his disciples in Mark chapter 10 as the rich young ruler heard the cost of following Christ when Jesus tells him to sell everything that he has in order to follow him. And he goes away because he's very rich and he's attached to his riches. And Peter gets excited and says, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus gives him a wonderful promise. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who's left behind houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see what this is saying. It may, in terms of the eyes of this world, cost you everything to follow Christ. And I'm not sure what it is that Christ may ask you to give up in order to follow him. But what he's promising is that you will receive back a hundredfold, a hundredfold. Anything that you give up for him, you will receive back in the joy of knowing Christ and in the joy of being a part of his spiritual family in the church. Brothers and sisters, I hope as you count the cost in following Christ, that you would see the true value of knowing Christ and be able to say with these faithful Christians, though I am willing to count the cost and follow Christ, I know that in the end, I will be able to say with them, I never made a sacrifice. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he is the Messiah. Thank you for Christ and that as he leads, us to salvation through his own death and calls us to follow him through death to life that we would answer the call we pray that we would be faithful disciples willing to take up our cross daily to follow him and that you would use us to be faithful witnesses for christ in this world particularly at a time such as this and in a time in which we don't know what to do Lord, our eyes are fixed on you. We pray that you would lead us, guide us, give us wisdom and grace, and use us in this world that needs you for your honor and glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.